It is uh, really good to be with you. It's a real privilege to stand in front of you and to open up the Bible. But before we begin, I should, um, I always uh, feel slightly strange to me. Basically, every time I speak, I want to do the same thing. I want to take a passage of the Bible and just step through it and point out, you know, what every word means, sentence means, paragraph means. Problem is, when, the song, when it comes to the Song of Songs, it's quite hard to do that uh, for, for several reasons. One, it's quite long. Two, it's extremely colorful. And thirdly, we don't really know what it's talking about most of the time. So that's why when it comes to the Song of Songs, take a slightly different approach. Now, what I'd like to ask you to do is to almost regard this as one talk in, in three parts. Okay, We will touch down on a lot of the text, but... But overall, what I'm trying to do is to expose you to the whole book of Song of Songs and then point out what God says to us through the book. So even though, you know, we're not going to step through three passages bit by bit, that's where I'm coming from. Because as far as I'm concerned, my responsibility is to expose you to the Word of God as he addresses us through this book and ultimately points us to the Lord Jesus Christ. So why don't we pray together as we begin. Father, we pray that you would uh, help us this afternoon and this evening. We pray that you'd help us to understand what the Song of Songs, Song of Solomon is doing in the Bible. We pray you'd help us to understand the words on the page. We pray that you'd help us to be honest with you and with ourselves as we see how this book um, applies directly to us. But above all, Father, we pray that tonight... You'd help us not just to see how this fits into the flow of the Bible, but you would help us to see Jesus. So come and work in us. Uh, be in our thinking, in our every conversation. Help us to be real with each other and help us to spur one another on as you work in us by your Spirit. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, the, the two things I get asked to speak on more often are, are Deuteronomy and Song of Songs. Uh, Deuteronomy, I'm really, I love being asked to speak on Deuteronomy. I did my PhD on Deuteronomy. I did it because I love the book and I wanted to get more of it. In a sense, you want to make me smile, ask me to speak on Deuteronomy. (laughs) Or you can ask me to speak on Song of Songs. Um, For many, many years, I happily avoided speaking on this part of the Bible. There are like, there's 65 other books to choose from. You know, why would you? Really? And then I made a terrible mistake um, I made a decision one summer in Dublin to preach a short series. You know, when people are coming and going, and there's not really, it's hard to do anything sequential because nobody's there five weeks in a row. So I thought, right, I'll do five standalone talks on the sort of slippery books of the Bible that you never look at. So I did Lamentations and Ruth and Esther, and I did, I did the Song of Songs. Okay? Everything I knew went into that talk. I uh, strung it out to about 22 minutes. No, that was, you know. Then, unfortunately, it was my wife's fault. I was in South Africa and she said, look, uh, I was asked to preach at short notice. And she said, that Song of Songs talk was really helpful. Do that. And I did that. And then the guy in South Africa rang a guy in Australia. And they asked me to come to Australia. They said, we'd like you to do two one-hour talks in Song of Songs. And I was going, I've only got 22 minutes. And even, even that's a bit stretched out. But, but at that point, I actually had to get into this book. 
And on that fateful day, a journey began, which is full of surprises and challenge and delight. And it's a journey for me, which continues to today as I've been asked to come back to this marvelous, unique part of the Bible. And as I've sat again with this um, slightly awkward, unpredictable old friend, I've once more heard the strong, gentle, confronting voice of God through the Scriptures. And today, that's my prayer for all of us, that that same encounter would happen to us as God speaks to us through his word. Now, I should tell you up front that there are quite a lot of things people don't agree on when it comes to the Song of Songs. If you pick up any two commentaries on the Song of Songs, then the chances are you'll pick up pretty quickly that they don't agree with each other. Uh, Even English Bible versions have their differences. They're not even sure who's saying what at which point of the book. My own personal favorite, however, is my, my, uh, my minister when I was a student in Scotland many years ago. And he had written a little book on the Song of Songs, and he'd written it, you know, 20, 30 years earlier, and then he was uh, preaching through the Song of Songs. I thought it'd be a really good idea to read his book while I listen, you know, while I listen to his sermons. I get very confused. I, I said, after one of the services, I said, um, excuse me, Mr. Still, I said, uh, you seem to be saying completely different things in your book and in your sermons. He said, Am I? He said, I never read anything that I've written before. So, you know, so that's what you're getting into with the Song of Songs, that that even, you know, the same guy can come to the book twice and come up with different things. Now, over the centuries, there have really been two schools of thought about Song of Songs, okay? The first is the it's definitely not about sex approach, okay? Now, I think it's fair to say that for much of the history of the Church of Jesus Christ, lots of Christians have been pretty uncomfortable when talking about the whole messy business of sex. So that meant when they started to read the Song of Songs, they had to find some way of explaining the rather awkward fact that it does seem to say quite a lot about sex. In fact, it's worse than that because at points it actually appears to be quite enthusiastic about sex and to be all for it in the right context. And the Church's response to make it very, very, very clear that whatever it's about, it's definitely not about sex. Now, the church father Origen was a great example of this. He was born in 185 AD in Alexandria. And over the next thousand years, I think what he wrote had a huge impact on the church. His commentary on the Song of Songs stretched to 10 volumes. we We don't still have it, but we know that it was there. 10 volumes. And what was even more remarkable was that he managed to write 10 volumes on the book of Song of Songs without mentioning sex at all. You know? Now, it turns out that actually said a bit more about Origen than it did about the Song of Songs because he had a slightly messed up view of sex himself. He actually thought all that bodily stuff was decidedly unspiritual, so much so when he kept having lustful thoughts, he, cast- he castrated himself to solve the problem. Don't think it worked in the long term, but it probably took his mind off it for a little while. But, 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 but not being content with de-sexing himself, he went on and did it to the Book of Song of Songs. And so began the long tradition of the church trying to avoid what's really quite obvious. So at the Westminster Assembly in the 17th century, I, I'm a Presbyterian by background, and the guys who kind of shaped my tradition, they called the song a hot carnal pamphlet formed by some loose Apollo or Cupid. John Wesley said that if this were about a couple, even a husband and wife, it would be monstrous. In fact, one of the few voices saying it's about sex, what's the big deal, was none other than John Calvin, 
who, who isn't often accused of being a good time Charlie, but uh, there you go. So, okay, so that raises the question, if they didn't think it was about love and sex, what, what do they think it was about? Well, simple, they thought it was all about Jesus. So 1 verse 2, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine, isn't about kissing. It's actually about reading the Bible. How could you miss it? Uh, the, verse, verse 12, the king lay on his couch. Well, that's obviously about the gestation period of Jesus in Mary's womb. My beloved is to me, verse 13, a sachet of myrrh that lies between my breasts. That's talking about, well, yes, you guessed it, the sachet of myrrh, that's obviously Jesus. And the breasts are quite obviously the Old Testament and the New Testament. <laughs> no, no, I... I'm sorry, I, I don't know about you, but when I read 113, I thought it was about, well, breasts, really, but there you go. Now, now okay, I, I, it's kind of easy to take cheap shots at interpretations down the centuries, and some writers have been much more nuanced, but the fact remains, there is this problem that the Song of Songs does appear to be talking about kind of love and sex. So there is a problem with the it's definitely not about sex approach. Now, there's a second approach, and if the older writers tended to say it's definitely not about sex, the modern trend is, has been to say, no, actually, it's all about sex. So the song bears some similarities to some other ancient erotic poetry. So some people say this is just the Bible's guide to better sex, presumably slipped into the canon when no one was looking to make kind of schoolboys snigger for the next thousand years, you know? Now, I've, in the past few years, listened to some talks from brothers I respect who make very specific use of some of the imagery in the book to make recommendations for what husbands and wives should do in the bedroom. But there's a problem with this approach, too, because it's so at odds with the modesty and reserve of the rest of the Bible, and actually so out of step with everything we know about ancient Israel, that this really can't be right either. So what are we to do? We must be missing something obvious. Surely there must be some way of reading this book which doesn't ignore the sexuality of the text but fits with the flow and the tone and the purpose of the rest of the Bible. Well, I think there is, and I don't think it's actually as elusive as one might think. Now remember, any time we read the Bible, wherever it is, Song of Songs or not, our starting point has to be that this is the, if this is the Word of God, which it is, and if God has given us the Spirit as his people, which he has, then if we read the text carefully and thoughtfully, we really should be able to get the gist of what it's about. It should be kind of obvious. If God speaks through the Bible, then we can assume he speaks clearly and in a way which we can understand. So that means if we're reading the Song of Songs in a way which makes it seem obscure or irrelevant or incomprehensible or all over the place or embarrassing, then it is very likely that we're not reading it properly. We're missing something. And in this case, I think as the church, we've often missed the fact that yes, this book is about sex. And yes, this book is ultimately about Jesus. And in the rest of our time, hopefully, we'll be able to, to bring these two things together in a way which does make sense of the book and also helps us to see how it applies to people like us as we begin to appreciate the genius of the guy who wrote this book. Now, as we begin this journey, I want to just lay a foundation to point, by pointing out three pretty obvious things which we need to get if we're going to make sense of the book and then see how it applies to, to men like us. And here's the first. 
Okay? Just look with me at the opening verse of the book and see how it starts. Solomon's Song of Songs. Now, I don't want to insult your intelligence, but there are a couple of important details to note here, which sometimes evade people who write commentaries in Song of Songs. Okay? The first thing is, it's a song. Okay? My good friend Doug, Doug O'Donnell, who uh, works with me at QTC, who I think has written the best commentary on Song of Songs by a mile, says this. This song is not primarily intended to be preached in church or taught in a classroom, but to be sung. And the fact that we don't sing it is to our shame. This is a God-inspired love song. So I suggest we start some new traditions. Let's write songs about the song. Let's sing these songs at Christian weddings. Let's sing them during the reception. Let's sing them as the couple is whisked away to their honeymoon. Let's follow them to the hotel and serenade them for seven days. I've suggested that's called stalking, but you know, you, you, you get the picture. You know, Doug says, look, it's a song. Now, that means it's poetry. Now, for many of us, that creates some problems, okay? I'd be surprised if too many people in the room are really big into poetry, okay? I live in Australia where I could just say nobody's into poetry and be sure of that. But, you know, so which of these two options would you naturally go for? Okay, here's option A. She walks in beauty like the night of cloudless climes and starry skies and all that's best of dark and bright meat in her aspect and her eyes, thus mellowed to that tender light which heaven to gaudy day denies. That's option A. Or option B. A woman in a black dress with shiny beads just walked past and she looked nice. Okay? I reckon more of us are option B guys. Now, I know we're not all kind of uncultured cavemen, but I do know that, that most men really would rather, you know, watch the sport than read a volume of Lord Byron's love poetry. In fact, most of us would rather fix the back fence than have a heart-to-heart with our wives or girlfriends. Poetry does not come easily to us. And in one way, that's okay. Because the Song of Songs is a song, but in the first place, it's a song for girls, Now, if you need convinced that it's a song for girls, just look with me at 2 verse 7, 3 verse 5, and 8 verse 4. We just look at 2 verse 7. They're all the same. The speaker says, I adjure you, I appeal to you, daughters of Jerusalem, do not stir up love until it pleases. This on the surface is a young woman's guide to love. The audience are these daughters of Jerusalem. Now, Proverbs, that's a book for boys. It's full of common sense and straight talking, and it uses the word son over 40 times. Hear this, my son. And the daughter, word daughter, you don't get it in Proverbs. Book for boys. The song, its primary audience is girls. Now, before you start to panic, you're going, come on, this is a man. (laughs) This is a man's convention. What are we doing a book for girls for? (laughs) The fact that it's a song for girls makes it uniquely helpful as blokes. Because let's face it, and I live in a house with four women, okay? I'm taking all the help I can get in understanding the feminine mind. uh, There's a a marvelous moment in the the American comedy, Modern Family, which I wouldn't kind of recommend, you know, wholeheartedly, but there's a bit where the husband is talking to his, his husband Phil's talking to his wife, Claire. And his wife's telling him just how important this issue is to her and that it means so much to her that, that she gets why it matters to her. And she looks him in the eye and says, 
So do you understand why this means so much to me, honey? And he goes, yes, dear. Then the camera cuts to him sitting on a couch on his own, and he's going, had absolutely no idea. Got got nothing. That's what it's like. If you've ever felt like that when dealing with the woman you love or women in general, this is the place to come. It's kind of as revealing as sneakily reading the problem pages in women's magazines in The Dentist, but far more reliable and less creepy. See, do you, do you, do you want to know how the feminine mind functions? Then play this song. It's a song. Then, then it's by, by Solomon, okay? Now, before you pack up and go home for the day to do something more manly, let me add to that the fact it is, it is addressed to girls, but it's written by a bloke. And a bloke who knows what he's talking about. It's written by Solomon. Now, I don't know how much you know about the Bible, but if you know anything about Solomon, you'll probably know the two things that meant he was uniquely qualified to write the ultimate book on love, sex, and marriage. Okay, the first is he's the wisest man who ever lived. Now, if you ask me, you need to be to step into this minefield, but, but that's the first thing. The second thing, he is very experienced. Okay? First Kings 11 tells us he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Okay? Solomon knows a lot about sex. Okay? Now, it does raise a bit of a question there. How could you possibly be the wisest man on the planet and get married 700 times, let alone, <laughs> let alone have 300 concubines on the side? How can you be so wise and yet feel so spectacularly to live God's way in one of the key areas of, of life? God had said back in Deuteronomy 17, the king of his people shouldn't be like other kings, shouldn't marry heaps of wives and set up a harem. But that one seems to have slipped under Solomon's radar. Now, actually, this tension is right at the heart of, of the account of Solomon's life in 1 Kings 11. The first time his wisdom is mentioned is actually when he assassinates his dad's old enemies. Then he asks God for wisdom to rule, which is great. And then he marries Pharaoh's daughter, not so great. He builds the temple, which is fantastic. He builds his wife a palace next door, which is about four times the size, not so great. He knows more about real love than any man on the planet, great. But he got it by having a thousand or more sexual partners, not so great. See, the Bible does present Solomon in a deeply ambiguous way, and it fits with this song. Because this song both celebrates the gift of sex and warns us of the potential dangers of sex, as we'll see. And in that, I actually think this song represents Solomon's finest moment. Now, I wouldn't go to the stake for this, and it's possible I'm wrong. But for me, the best way to make sense of this song is as one that Solomon wrote when it dawned on him that he may have messed things up a bit in the love department. I think Solomon realized that he'd mucked up and then he wrote this book. I think that'll make more sense to you as the day goes on. But just let me point you to one part of the text which I think points us clearly in this direction and I think is actually the clue which unlocks the whole book. Now, turn with me in your Bibles to to chapter 8 and the closing verses of the book. kind of little strange footnote at the end of the book. 8 verse 11. Solomon had a vineyard in Baal Hamon. He let out his vineyard to tenants. Each was to bring for its fruit a thousand shekels of silver. 
But my own vineyard is mine to give. The thousand shekels are for you, O Solomon, and the two hundred are for those who tend its fruit. That sounds a little bit cryptic. But, But let me help you see what's going on here. Solomon's vineyard here is almost certainly his harem, his fairly impressive thousand strong collection of wives and concubines. The tenants are Solomon's employees, the, the officials who had the job of recruiting for his harem. You know, Solomon and his staff picked people out. As the king, he sees someone he quite fancies at a public event. He just kind of sends the people around to make the family an offer they can't refuse. And no sooner than you could say, wife number 701, come on down. It was all sorted. That's how it happened for the king, except this time it was different. Here is Solomon's vineyard. This woman gets an invitation to join the vineyard, an offer that she couldn't refuse, except she does. Verse 12. She says, my own vineyard is mine to give. (laughs) Keep your thousand shekels, O Solomon. The 200 are for those who tend its fruit. It's the commission for those who are working for Solomon. There was, it seems, at least one feisty woman who was prepared to tell Solomon and his henchmen exactly what to do with their shekels. My vineyard, which has been used earlier in the book to talk of the woman's body, she says, my vineyard is my, is my own and I'm not, keep, I'm not giving it to you. Keep it. Use some of it to pay your pimps, but don't try to buy me. Solomon discovers that money, wisdom, and even a lot of servants can't actually buy you love. Now, now just think about this for a moment. Spare a thought for Solomon. He can't have been used to getting knockbacks like this. You know, for some of us, you know, we managed to accrue quite a lot of experience of rejection. And, you know, we learned to cope with a certain reserved dignity. But you didn't say no to Solomon. He was wise, he was rich, he was powerful, he was the king. Who did this woman think she was? You can't say no to me. And this woman rejects Solomon, and then at the end of the book, the girl and her very ordinary beloved walk off into the sunset. In verses 13 and 14, Solomon, the writer, is left to watch, and I think, I suspect, he reflects on his life, on his love life, and suddenly he gets the fact that he has lost the plot. He's missed the main thing, and he sits down and starts to write. First Kings 11 says he wrote 1,005 songs. I suspect this may be song 1,005, kind of the musical equivalent of Moses' last sermon in Deuteronomy. And it says, I had all this, but I missed the main thing. Uh, I spent six years uh, working on the staff of a large church in Northern Ireland, the, the country where I grew up. And at that time, the former minister of the congregation worshipped with us. He, he was the guy who'd really built the church up, brought the gospel to the church. He was kind of like the grandfather of the, of the congregation. Now he was, he was in his 80s, and every time I visited him, he would do two things. He always did the same two things. He, he used to put a toffee in my pocket, you know. I mean, by this stage, I think I was, I was in my 30s, you know, but, but he was kind of patting me on the head and they said, there you go, son, take a sweet for the way home, you know. And then he, he would always say, you know, Gary, he said, the one regret I have is that I neglected my family. I was a stranger to them as they grew up. Promise me you will not do the same. Must have said it to me ten times. You know, there's, there's real sadness. This, this godly old man, 
and just speaking with real pain about the, the one thing. I think Solomon's looking back on his life and his conquests. And he realizes that in the middle of all this, he has actually missed out on real love and even on delighting in God himself. And he says to us, make sure you don't blow it like I did. Promise me. And he writes this song. And the song is about a young couple who are passionately and exclusively and selflessly in love. They're utterly and permanently committed to each other, as we'll see. And who are these lovers? Well, we don't really know. As the book book starts and continues, it becomes clear that the king, the king of lovers, the man with all the experience is on the outside looking in on this pure, wholesome, in some ways innocent relationship. He's been given the brush off and all he can do is look enviously at a relationship which doesn't just show that real love is possible even in our messed up world, but ultimately points to the source of all love and the God who is love. This king, this wise man, I think writes himself into the song in a self-critical, even self-mocking way. You know, like Alfred Hitchcock used to, or Quentin Tarantino making a cameo appearance in their own movies. I think Solomon writes himself into his own story. It is a song by Solomon. And the third thing, okay, it's a song by Solomon, and it's the ultimate love song. See, the slave notes in 1 verse 1 say not only that it's Solomon's song, but it is the song. You know, it's, it's, it's like one of those TV adverts. You know, the ultimate love collection. You know, the best 150,000 love songs of all time. You know, yours for, yours for 11 dirham. You know, that's that kind of, you know. This is the last word on sex and love and marriage. Now, I don't know about you. That strikes me as a fairly huge claim to make. I mean, for those of you who are married, I wonder, how, I wonder how it would go if you went home this evening and said, you know, dear, I've decided I'm going to write the, the definitive book on marriage. I wonder how many of us would get encouragement to do that at home. If you ever do, do try to do that, please let me know what your wife says. I'd be interested to hear. But if anyone's going to write this, uh, this song, which exposes the emptiness of sex without love and celebrates the delights of love in the context of marriage and finally takes us back to God himself, I can't think of anyone better to do it. And actually, I think Solomon pulls it, pulls it off. This is a remarkable piece of work, as we'll see in the rest of our time. So, Solomon's ultimate love song, I think it's written by an old man who'd been there and done it and is reflecting on the contradiction that was his life in the light of the fear of the Lord. It's a song that's addressed to girls and it's written for them and it's written for us blokes to help us with one of the great challenges of life in this universe, understanding the female mind. Now, that's a very long introduction to a talk. But if we're going to make sense of this book, we do need to get this basic framework in our head. We need to know what we're reading. So where are we going to go from here? Well, over the next two and a bit talks, first we're going to look at what God teaches us as men about how to talk to women. And I think he knows we need all the help we can get on that one. Then in the second session, we're going to, we're going to talk specifically about sex and listen to what God says to us about having a sufficiently positive view of sex. Now, I know you may not think you struggle with having a positive enough view of sex, but uh, well, we'll see. And then finally, in the last one, we're going to bring everything together and look at why it's a mistake thinking that sex really is the most important thing, of, thing in life as we see how this book fits into the message of the Bible as a whole. So, so that's where we're going. Now, just, just one more thing. Before we jump into the text, I am so aware 
that every time we open up this book, we walk into a pastoral minefield. You know, now, <laughs> there, there are some things in the book uh, that to, to modern ears, they do make us laugh and, and smile, and that's perfectly okay. But there are also parts of this book that will make us feel very edgy. Because the truth is that there will be some of us here today who, whether we admit it to anyone else or not, are, are aching for a relationship. There's some of us who are, who, are, who are unhappily single. And opening up the Song of Songs just, just kind of rubs salt in that particular wound. There'll be some of us who are in a relationship already which we know isn't a healthy or God-centered relationship. Some of us may be generally happily married, but as soon as we start talking about sex and dealing with the passion of this book, we start feeling either terribly inadequate or terribly resentful. And in a, in a bunch of men this size, I know there will be some of us who are caught in the middle of affairs or who, lo- who are locked into sexual behavior already, which is deeply damaging and wrong. Some of us may be struggling with our sexuality and trying to deal with that. And reading this book may simply make us feel more alone or more distant. Then, of course, there's the simple fact that for for many men, reading any book which mentions breasts so often creates a whole set of problems in and of itself. See, reading this book is, is a strange experience. But we can expect God to put his finger on areas in our lives which we really do need him to deal with. So if that's you, don't walk away. If your pastor or one of your elders is here, please make sure if God underlines these things that you talk to him before you go. If he isn't, or you are the pastor and you want someone to talk to, talk to me, talk to Dave, and we'll point you to someone if we can't talk to you ourselves. See, when God speaks, it's unbelievably stupid to ignore him. So, so let's not do that. So in the few minutes that are left in this first session, I want to get into the text and begin to apply some of this teaching as kind of taster of how this book uh, addresses us as men. So, so let's look at singing songs for girls or some hints on speaking to the fairer sex. Let's go back to the, the, the start of the book again. It starts with a bit of a bang, really. An unidentified woman starts talking. And this is what she says. Verse 2. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is more delightful than wine. Whew. There's no messing about here. She comes straight to the point. It's quite striking that the woman speaks first here. But before we get too worked about, up about that, I don't think that has anything to do with an early feminist agenda. I don't think it's got anything to do with a debate on complementarianism. Go to Ephesians 5 if you want to know about that. In this book, the woman, the woman speaks more because she is a woman. And... <laughs> And she speaks first, not because she's trying to undermine the principle of headship or submission, but because she is a bit feisty. This woman, as I think Solomon finds out to his later cost, has a mind of her own. Now, that may be some comfort, first off, for all you blokes who are married to women who don't appear to think you're God, uh, or who are brighter than you, or smarter than you, or quicker than you, and aren't just content to have your babies and worship at your feet, which I reckon probably covers most of us. Uh, So let's keep going. She wants to kiss her man, not least because he smells good. Pleasing is the fragrance of your perfumes. Your name is like perfume poured out. Okay? Personal hygiene is important. Okay? He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Okay? 
Okay, so take it to heart so that your wife may say, no wonder the maidens love you. Verse four, take me away with you. Let us hurry. Let the king bring me into his chambers. Who is this woman? We don't know. Who's who's her lover? We don't know yet other than the fact she calls him the king. You may like to go home this evening if you're married and suggest to your wife that she call you that at least once a day. Might be worth a try anywhere. I don't think you'll get anywhere. But, but what I want you to notice is what the woman says in verses 5 and 6. Dark am I, yet lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem. Dark like the tents of Kedar, like the tent curtains of Solomon. Do not stare at me because I'm dark, because I'm darkened by the sun. My mother's sons were angry with me and made me take care of the vineyards. My own vineyards I've neglected. A couple of things to note. This woman is sunburned because she's had to work in the fields. Second thing, this woman is part of a dysfunctional family. See, the third thing, even though there's loads of idealism in this book, it takes place in the real world, our messy world. And fourth thing, this woman was insecure about her, experience, about her appearance. Don't ask me why, but this is the way it is for virtually every woman under the sun. In fact, I think it's safest to assume that it's true of all women. When we were in Dublin, um, my wife Fiona ran a women's Bible study in our house on Tuesday mornings uh, for about 12 women. And uh, my, my job was to, to kind of get into the kitchen, make myself a cup of coffee and get out again, kind of before the women had arrived. But one day I was a little bit late. I'm standing there minding my own business, kind of in the corner, quietly making my coffee. And I couldn't help overhearing as the women started to chat. They started with weight issues. And then they moved on to breast sizes and, and, and. And I, at one point I had to say, uh, excuse me, guys, you know I'm still here. You know, <laughs> just give me two minutes and I'll be out of here. But it didn't make any difference because actually for them, this was the most natural conversation to have in the world. They were all insecure to some degree about their appearance. It's interesting, just now, I'm, I'm on study leave just now, it's great, you know, I, uh, I get to take, our youngest daughter's nine, I get to walk her about 500 meters up to school every day, and usually I'm around in the afternoon to pick her up, it's just great. One of the things I noticed, there's, there's a real difference between the dads who are there and the mums, you know? The question about the dads is, have you remembered, have you remembered to change out of your pajamas to, to, walk, to walk your daughter to school? Usually the answer is yes, but you know, you know, people haven't shaved or, you know, they've just got a t-shirt, shorts on, everybody's relaxed. The women. It's not that everybody is glamorously dressed, but every single woman has obviously thought about what they're going to wear. There is, there is just a basic difference. Now, that means it's important that we need to learn to speak to women. And specifically our wives, if we're married in a loving and godly way. How do we love and serve our wives? Partly by making the effort, by learning to speak to them in a loving, thoughtful, and godly way. Listen how the man opens up. I liken you, my darling, to a mare harnessed to one of the chariots of Pharaoh. Your cheeks are beautiful with earrings. Your neck with strings of jewels will make you earrings of gold studded with silver. Verse 15. Oh, how beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful your eyes are doves. Now, just for a minute, ignore the fact in verse 9 that she looks like a big horse. Um, we'll come back to that in a second. But, but I just want you to see how hard he works to make his beloved feel beautiful. 
She is his standard of beauty. For this guy, his wife defines beauty and he works really, really hard to make sure he gets that. He doesn't compare her to anyone in the movies or on TV. He doesn't speak of other women in glowing terms. He just speaks about her. If you're married, your wife is your standard of beauty. So for me, what is beauty? Just now, I'm into 45-year-old, five-foot-three Scottish women with freckles who've had three children and for some inexplicable reason think their ankles are fat. That's about to change. Soon I'll be into 46-year-old Scottish women who are five-foot-three. So, you know. It doesn't matter whether your wife is a 38 double F or a 30A, that's what you're into. If she's skinny, that's what you're into. If she's overweight, that's what you're into. It's not your job to encourage your wife to get into shape. It's your, jo- it's your job to love her the way that she is. Our wives are our standard of beauty, and we need to work hard to make them feel that. Now, I, I don't know you guys from Adam, and I'm not attuned to the finer points of culture in the UAE, but I have to tell you I'd be slightly surprised if using words is your strong point, especially with your wives. If we were to ask our wives, what do they love most about us? I suspect I'd be shocked if the top answer was, he pays me such imaginative compliments. We, we need to work on this. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Roxanne with uh, Steve Martin. Steve Martin's the local fire chief. It's based on the story of Serrano de Bergerac, but he's the f- local fire chief who who writes beautifully, even though he has an incredibly big nose, which means he never gets any girls. He helps one of the young firefighters, kind of, you know, a real kind of butch young guy, by writing love letters for him, which goes really well because the beautiful woman who's just moved into town then asks him for a date. And it's all going swimmingly until she says, say some of those things to me. Now, thankfully, he is wearing a headset with Steve Martin in a van out in the car. And so the scene unfolds. You know, of course, it's interrupted by the police radio. You know, so she says, say something lovely. And he says, car 53, car 53, you know. But, but it gets worse. And Steve Martin gives him a few great lines. And then the line goes dead. And this guy is, is on his own. I think it is one of the most harrowing moments in the history of cinema for every man. As this guy go, tries to come up with compliments the best he can do is, he says, your breasts, they are, they are so big, <laughs> he said. They are like melons. No, they are like pillows. And he says, can I fluff your pillows? <laughs> At which point, the girl runs crying from the room, wondering what's happened. And the young man looks completely bewildered. And the shot cuts to Steve Martin, who's sitting in the van, banging his head off the side. Now, you know, for, for most of us, I honestly think that's how we feel when we come to this, this book. Having to talk at all to women, let alone talk like this, is enough to bring about a seizure. So what are we supposed to do? Well, Song of Songs actually is the answer. We're supposed to do whatever it takes. Listen to some of the things this, this guy says to his wife. Chapter 4. How beautiful you are, O oh my darling. 4 verse 1. Oh, how beautiful. Your eyes behind your veil are doves. Your air is like a flock of goats descending from Mount Gilead. 
Your teeth are like a flock of sheep just shorn, coming up from the washing, each as its twin. Not one of them is alone. Now, we do need to know when you read Song of Songs that some markers of beauty are specific to particular cultures. So obviously saying you have all your teeth was likely to elicit a warm and grateful response. I suspect if I were to say that to my wife, I might get a smack in the nose, you know. And speaking of noses, I do find it hard to, say, to work out how saying your nose is like a Tower of Lebanon was ever a smart move, you know. One of my friends suggested it may have been a small pretty tower, but, you know, it's still a tower, you know. So, you know, you know. But, but even when the particular images sound a bit strange, just, you need to be pretty slow to miss the point. Verse 3. You know, your, your lips are like a scarlet ribbon. Your mouth is lovely. Your temples behind your veil are like the halves of a pomegranate. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built with elegance. On it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. Your two breasts are like two fawns, like twin fawns of a gazelle. Not even going to try to explain what, what that means. Verse 7, all beautiful you are, my darling. There's no flaw in you. Verse 9, you've stolen my heart, my sister, my bride. You've stolen my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. How delightful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much more pleasing is your love than wine and the fragrance of your perfume than any spice. Your lips drop sweetness as the honeycomb, my bride. Milk and honey are under your tongue. Your, the fragrance of your garments is like that of Lebanon. Now, just be careful with that last one. Um, you smell like Brisbane, for example, may be misinterpreted as you smell like the brewery, which kind of dominates the uh, center of the city. So choose your comparisons well, but do pre- be prepared to work hard. My two favorites actually come in chapter seven. Um, your graceful legs are like the legs of a good chair in verse one. And verse two, your navel is a rounded goblet that never lack blended wine which is not far from saying your navel is a great place to hold a beer, but I wouldn't recommend, <laughs> wouldn't recommend using that line. But you see, in, in all this, the lover uses his imagination. He works hard. He thinks. Now, you can't just dismiss this by saying, as they say in Ireland, that this guy had kissed the Blarney Stone. No, that he was just one of these people who could smooth talk women, a smooth, smooth talk women. As the lover speaks, he's putting all of his effort into speaking in a way to his wife, which actually moves and touches and serves her. I suspect that part of the reason Solomon got so many girls was because he could talk. Though probably being immensely rich and having an army probably made it hard to say no. But as he writes about this, he recognizes the real thing. He records the passionate, heartfelt, authentic words of an ordinary bloke who's making a real effort to love and serve the woman in his life. The great news is that even when we struggle here, we do have a chance to be different. I think it's important to realize that especially if we belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, if his spirit has moved into our lives, we are equipped to love after Jesus. And that includes learning to love our wives. It won't sound the same for all of us. It may come easier to some of us than others. But if learning to speak in a way that serves and builds up our wives and makes them feel like they are treasured is basically a matter of observing and thinking, then we're without excuse. We just need to stop making excuses and work at this. How how do we learn to talk, okay, not exactly like the Song of Songs, but to be thoughtfully loving and complimentary to our wives? 
the most helpful thing I've ever read on this is C.J. Mahaney's little book called Sex, Romance, and the Glory of God, What Every Husband Needs to Know. It's only 104 pages, and they're really small pages. You know? So even blokes who don't like poetry or books can manage to read it. And he says some really helpful things. And he starts from the conviction that it's our responsibility as Christian husbands to touch our wife's mind before we touch her body. In other words, we need to think first and then we talk. Talking without thinking, as I regularly prove, seldom has a positive effect. We need to think and speak. So how often do we speak to our wives? I mean, talk properly and thoughtfully rather than who's picking up the kids, exchanges of information. Before we come home, for those of us who work outside the home, before we drive home, before we pick up the phone to talk to our wife, before we walk into the bedroom, do we engage our brain and say, okay, Lord, please help me to see what my, life is li- my wife is likely to need from me right now? Or are we simply thinking about ourselves? I realized not long after we moved to Australia that, that when I was coming home at the end of a day's work, I was driving in the drive with my head full of everything that had been going on in college during the day and what I needed to do during that night. And I walked in the door thinking about myself, essentially. And I would walk home, you know, heal the conquering hero, the great leader who has been out, you know, hunting and gathering for the sake of his family, you know, awaiting a welcome. You know, where is my adoring wife and children, you know, to come and run and you know, kind of fall at my feet. And I would walk in with my head in that space and Fiona would be trying to manage, you know, six lifts, three children, make, making tea, you know, trying to control the dog, you know, cleaning the kitchen at the same time. And I would walk home as if to say, I am here. <laughs> it was actually deeply unloving. You know what I do now? When I drive in the gate, I just say, please, Lord, help me to walk in the door thinking about Fiona and the girls. Not one little thing makes a huge difference. You know, it doesn't mean that Fiona's... Sometimes she's just glad that the cavalry has arrived, that there's another pair of hands. Sometimes she just needs me to listen to appreciate what a horrible afternoon it's been. Sometimes she needs, she needs to hear me talk about college because she's had such a kind of mundane afternoon trying to serve Jesus in all the details of life that she actually needs some. <laughs> she needs her world to be expanded. But what she needs most of all is me to be able to pick those things. And so I ask God to turn me out from myself every time I drive through our gate. See, what she needs me to do is think before I pick up the phone. She needs me to, to write Send her an email, a letter, a note. See, what our wives need from us, whatever that looks like, if you're married, is they need to be cherished from the moment they wake up to the moment they fall asleep. Including that moment when you've collapsed into bed and you're just about to go to sleep when your wife says, have you thought about the fact that child X doesn't seem to have any friends? Or I'm really struggling with the way that my sister's treating me. Oh, oh and by the way, you haven't done X, Y, and Z and you did do A, B, and C. It is one of the key differences between men and women that, that, a man, that men think a chair is for talking and a bed is for sleeping. 
whereas apparently women think a bed is for talking. So for me, at the end of the day, it's like kind of land in a plane. You know, when, when Fiona says, you know, should we go to bed now? For me, you know, the undercarriage is down, you know, the lights are there, and I'm, I'm heading for sleep, you know? And I need to love her enough that, you know, when the, when the wheels are just touching down and my eyes are clothe, closing, and she starts some apparently ridiculous conversation from my perspective, that I need to love her enough to go, okay, here we go, back up and start circling, you know? Sometimes Fiona says for me, the most loving thing I can do is, is sit up in bed and put my glasses on. Because she, she knows if I put my glasses on, I've kind of engaged my brain. You know, <laughs> apparently. If I roll over with my eyes half closed and say, oh yes, tell me what, whatever, that's, that's not very loving, okay? So we need to be ready. Whatever that, I can't tell you what, that's partly some of the little ways that it, things it looks like for me. You've got to work out what, what it looks like for you. Now, we've got to be honest. Some of us struggle to string two sentences together about anything that doesn't involve either an engine or a ball. So, so what are we supposed to do? We, we do have to make an effort. Uh, in that book by C.J. Mahaney, he suggests that we take some time in a coffee shop once a week or, you know, at work or, you know, early in the morning to actually write down how you're going to try to love your wife and your kids if you have kids this week. You know, so if one of his goals is to make his wife feel appreciated, he actually writes down in a small notebook, you know, kind of things he wants to say, what he might do. Things to thank his wife for, little ideas for gifts. Okay, no, I'm not saying, you know, they carry around a book and you go, darling, I have something spontaneous to say to you. You know, hold on, it's a really good one. And he wrote it out earlier, you know, I'm not saying that'll work, but... But the implication of the Song of Songs, the whole thrust of this book, it, I think you read it and you say, okay, I've got to be more like this guy. I need to be prepared to do whatever it takes to make the women in my life feel cherished. If we're going to do that, we need to think about speaking and we need to speak. Now, we're going to pause there, but I hope you get the point, okay? That I, I think the very language of this book makes it clear if we're to cherish our wives if we're to love them in the way we're made to and called to, as Ephesians 5 points out, and we'll come back to this later, if we are called as husbands to love our wives in the way that Christ loves the church, then at a very basic level, we need to speak to them lovingly and thoughtfully. So how do you speak to your wife? How have we been speaking to our wives over this last week, month? Now, there's a much broader application of this book than simply to husbands and wives. So if you're not a husband, if you're a single guy, you're engaged, don't panic. You know, we'll get to you soon enough. You know, this is not all going to miss you, okay? But for now, those of us who are married or who are about to be married need to think about this. First thing is, do we get the link that our relationship with God through the gospel does actually flow into the way in which we speak to our wives? because we are called to love our wives as Christ loved the church. We need to ask ourselves, have we been speaking to our wives all day, every day, as if she's your treasure? <laughs> One of my friends in the U.S. tells, tells a story against himself where he was cleaning the garage and he was covered in dust and you know, a bag of cement had just burst and he was just utterly frustrated. 
and he said, the door of the garage opened and he turned around and he went, what do you want? He said, because I thought it was my wife. He says, it turned out it was the nice Baptist lady next door. He said he felt deeply embarrassed. And then he realized that actually exposed something in his heart about his wife. So third thing, have we actually been devoting any headspace at all to making our wives feel cherished? If our wives were here and we would ask them to, everyone to rate us out of 10 on the speaking cherishing front, what do you reckon we'd get? So right now, as, as we really begin to get into this book, what do we need to repent of? What do we need to ask God to help us do differently? Now, this is not the main point of Song of Songs. But we're, we're getting to that. That's why I'm saying think of these three talks as kind of one talk in three parts. But it is a very important basic application of the way in which this relationship is shown to us. A relationship in which the man speaks so thoughtfully and lovingly to, to the woman he loves. And that is held up by Solomon to women <laughs> as what they should expect and look for. Let's pray together. Loving Father, we know that you call all of us to be like the Lord Jesus. You have given us the mind of Christ. You poured your spirit into our hearts. And we pray that you'd help us even now to make the connection between what you have done for us in lavishing your love on us in the Lord Jesus and the primary importance of loving our wives. We pray that as we think... We, we ask that you'd help those of us who are married to, to work hard at seeing what it means to cherish our wives, how to love them in a way that works for them, that nourishes and protects and frees them. We pray you'd help us never to dismiss them, never to ignore their, their real needs. Help us, Father, not to be lazy but to do everything in our power and the strength you supply to love like the Lord Jesus. For we ask it in his name. Amen.